for coming on this chilly, chilly um, July day. Um, my name's Louise Denoon and I'm the Executive Manager of Queensland Memory at State Library and I'd like to welcome you here today to the Out of the Port, New Perspectives on Queensland History and Heritage. This is a monthly series that we present in partnership with Cultural Heritage at the Department of Environment and Resource Management. So every month we come together for uh, some reflections, some presentation on a new aspect of research that's being undertaken. Um, but before we begin, and I'll do the introductions, I would like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, um, the Turrbal and the Yagara, and pay our respects to their ancestors who came before them. So today we are here today to um, uh, please to be able to present the 2010 John Oxley Library Fellow, uh, Dr Jeff Rickett. The JOL Fellowship is an initiative of State Library that encourages the research and documenting of Queensland history using sources uh, from the John Oxley Library and the State Library more generally. Um, and the fellowship is made possible by the generous support of the foundation and we couldn't offer it um, without them. So back to Jeff. Jeff is a respected historian, author, and importantly in this setting, a University of Queensland librarian. Um, Jeff will be discussing um, his work and findings that he did as part of the fellowship on the making of Ernie Lane. So um, after his presentation, there'll be an opportunity for some questions. Uh, please note that we're actually recording today and make available the talk on the website. So if you want to go back to points um, or if you don't want to be recorded asking a question, um, please be aware of that. So please welcome um, Jeff to speak. Thanks Louise and thanks to everyone for coming out um, this afternoon. Well, for the better part of 50 years, really, um, possibly longer, depending on where you want to see Ernie's political career ending, um, but certainly beginning in the late 1880s, Ernest Henry Lane was at the forefront of progressive politics in Queensland. He was a militant trade unionist, a republican, a ridiculer of privilege, a debunker of establishment cant, an opponent of war and conscription, and a thorn in the side of the moderates who came to control the Labor Party. Journey there. Um, above all, Lane was a passionate opponent of the wage labour system. Capitalism, Lane argued, not only impoverished people materially, it crushed them intellectually and spiritually, denying them the opportunity to realise their full human potential as reasoning, creative beings. Lane, in short, was a socialist. Friend and fellow radical Ted Brady called him a consistent, cultured and conscientious communist. Labor Party historian Dennis Murphy referred to him as a political romantic, a dangerous believer in pipe dreams. Alex MacDonald, the General Secretary of the Queensland Trades and Labor Council, called Ernie a staunch fighter for the Australian and international working class, a tireless activist whose faith in the creative ability of the people and firm adherence to principle served as a splendid example to the youth of the labor movement. Whatever version of Ernie Lane, the rebel, we choose to accept, and there are many on offer, we are left in no doubt that a propensity for rebelliousness was the defining characteristic of this man. And yet, in the actual life of Ernie Lane, this was not always the case. If we could travel back in time to the 24th of May, 1884, and make our way through the journey-weary crowd at the Brisbane Immigration Centre, until we found the quiet young migrant bearing the name Ernest H. Lane, we would discover no hint of the radical that would emerge in coming years. Born in Bristol in December 1868, Lane was the son of an English mother and an Irish father of Catholic peasant stock 
who had converted to Protestantism as he endeavoured to make his way in the world. Ernie grew up in a conservative household. His father James was a nurseryman and florist, at one time employing up to 20 workers to service the landscaping needs of the region's well-to-do. Along the way, James fervently embraced the ideology of conservatism, becoming chairman of the, Br- of the Bristol Conservative Workingmen's Club, a poor law guardian and a popular Tory speaker. Ernie's mother, Caroline, had been in service to Dorset House, one of the grand residences in the Bristol district of Clifton. When the Lanes married, they settled into nearby Manila Cottage, part of Manila Hall, a large estate established by Sir William Draper and named to commemorate Draper's role as a leader of the British Expeditionary Force that captured and brutally occupied Manila in 1762. Sir William was the kind of figure Ernie grew up admiring. My greatest delight, Lane recalled in his memoirs, was to get a talk started on England's history and naval and military heroes. I knew no others. I once said that I would rather have a talk on great men than a piece of cake. (laughs) So it should come as no surprise then that the young man who stood surveying the scene on the Brisbane Wharf in 1884 had no intention of launching a lifetime of struggle in the cause of working class emancipation. He arrived in Brisbane carrying a Bible inscribed by his older brother William with the words, Fear God and Honour the Queen. It was an exhortation that Ernie at that stage of his life took very seriously. Less than five years later, however, Lane was an anti-capitalist, anti-establishment radical of the First Order. And my intention in this talk today is to examine how this happened. How did the intellectual and political transformation of Ernest Henry Lane come to pass? To answer this question, it's useful, I think, to conceptualise what we might conventionally call biographical influences into three distinct categories. For want of better terms, I call them the influence of experience, the influence of close political voices and the influence of public events. So let's begin with experience. In other words, with the immediate events and circumstances of Ernie's life. I want to home in on three distinct aspects of Ernie's formative years. Childhood impoverishment, migration and work. In the 1860s, the Lane gardening business was thriving. By 1871, when Ernie was two, the household was apparently prosperous enough to employ a 17-year-old servant. But bad times lurked around the corner, precipitated, it seems, by James's fondness for the, for the drink. Now, as his drinking got the better of him, the family business declined and the household fell on hard times. At the age of 14, Ernie's brother William was forced by poverty to give up a promising academic career at Bristol Grammar School. When their mother died on the 16th of December 1876, the boy's only sister, Gertrude, or Gertie, had to leave school to care for the family. By 1881, the Lanes had moved to Sussex, and James, by then remarried, was trying to make a new start as a master gardener. Now, Ernie would have been too young to remember the prosperous times, but he was old enough to notice and feel the psychological harm inflicted on the family, and particularly on his mother, by his father's drinking and by the family's shameful fall from grace. Without wanting to psychologise too much, I think it's reasonable to suggest that Ernie's lifelong hypersensitivity to injustice and to what Richard Sennett has called the hidden injuries of class had its genesis in the hurt and shame he experienced as a boy. It was certainly one of the factors that motivated him to emigrate. But emigration too was a traumatic experience for the young Lane. In 1883, Ernie and his brother Frank signed up for assisted passages to Queensland where, they were told, work was abundant and opportunities abounded. The brothers were among 
almost 16,500 optimistic souls who in 1884 alone would make the journey to Queensland under the colony's immigration scheme. Many were escaping crippling unemployment, convulsing the country districts and metropolitan centres of Britain uh, since the late 1870s. Aboard the Lane's ship, the Otago, the assisted emigres comprised 50 married couples, 36 children, 161 single men and 20 single women. Conditions on the, tar- on the Otago bore little resemblance to the picture painted by the immigration propaganda. The squalidness and overcrowding in steerage was rivalled only by the scandalous quality of the food. Complaints to the ship's surgeon, Thomas MacDonald, met with, at best, small and temporary concessions. Reprisals and favouritism formed the more usual pattern of official behaviour. Now, to make matters worse, the ship had barely left sight of the English coast when the captain announced that those in steerage were required to carry coal and pump and haul water for the benefit of the crew and the passengers in the saloon area. Those who who refused were denied fresh water and had their food restricted. Now, passengers in mess groups numbers (coughs) 8 to 17 responded to this edict with a strike. But as one of their number, Thomas Williamson, recorded, the consequences of this direct action were dire. We tried hard at tea time to get some hot water, but they would give us none. I managed to get a little drop from number two mess, which made a mouthful of tea for some of us. Manning and I have eaten nothing for the last two days. On the 12th of April, he reported another strike by some members of the number 10 mess. Again, the men were punished with an enforced fast. Several recalcitrants were said to have been kept on biscuits and water for the greater part of the voyage, at least one of whom had paid his passage in full. Now, Ernie left no recollection of any of this. His memoir skips over the voyage. So we do not know precisely how he and Frank were affected by the shipboard conditions or by the behaviour of the officers. We do not know if they were involved in the strikes or other forms of resistance that occurred. But we do know that they were there amongst that human cargo down in steerage, treated a little better than convicts. They could not have avoided the mistreatment. They could not have avoided bearing witness to the acts of solidarity and kindness the victims displayed to one another, much of which has been documented. They could not have failed to be privy to the below-decks discussions about their common plight and about the options for collective self-help and resistance. It's very difficult to imagine that in these circumstances, Ernie would not have asked himself some hard questions about a system of authority that would treat people so poorly. When actually faced with the callousness and pettiness of this form of class oppression, Ernie would have found that it could not easily be explained away or justified with the conservative nostrums of his youth. It is likely that on the voyage to Queensland, injustice and solidarity registered for the first time as aspects of Lane's socially lived experience. Having survived the voyage, Lane then had to find work. By late 1883, the Queensland economy was entering a crisis. Drought struck during the year and unemployment in Brisbane began to rise. George Lansbury, an older contemporary of Lane's and later the leader of the British Labor Party, described his impressions of Brisbane when, like Lane, he arrived from the old country in 1884. The first glimpse of a friend's face on shore, he wrote, sent our hearts into our boots. There was something so pathetic and far away in the faces of the people, the kind of wretchedness which disappointment stamps on the faces of those whose hearts are sick and whose hopes are gone. Lansbury soon discovered for himself the reason for this distress. We had come to Australia to get away from competition and to live a simple life. As a matter of fact, we had come into a very hell of competition. Lane observed this distress too, but managed to avoid the calamity of prolonged unemployment 
by securing a job on a dairy farm at German Station, north of Brisbane. The farm was run by Andrew Wagner, the son of Johann Gottfried Wagner, one of the evangelical German Lutherans who had descended on the area in 1838. In the 1880s, German Station still lay well outside the parameters of Brisbane. Adjoining Kedron was still a separate town in 1889. But the city's residential reach was expanding and industry spreading. By the time Lane took up his position at Wagner's, a railway line serviced Nunda and a railway carriage and wagon workshop was established in the area, attracting new residents and additional small businesses. The farm supplied the dairy needs of this burgeoning local community and also extended in to supply the needs of, of Brisbane itself. Andrew and his siblings were all skilled farmers, having been trained and daring from childhood. It was perhaps a sign of the farm's success in these years that Wagner was compelled to look to a source of labour outside his own family. The young and vulnerable Lane was the dubious beneficiary of this decision, employed in the dairy for seven and six per week at a time when bricklayers and carpenters, for example, were receiving a weekly wage of 50 to 60 shillings. For his modest income, Ernie was expected to start work at 1.30 each morning, Sundays and holidays included. It was a hard job, made all the more alienating by its loneliness and isolation. While the Otago experience was made bearable by the solidarity of fellow sufferers, there was no such solace in companionship to be found at German Farm. Though there is no suggestion that Lane was physically mistreated by the Wagners, neither is there any indication that he formed any emotional bond with the family. The experience of 12 months of lonely toil for a pittance and pay, he later wrote tersely and perfunctorily, was not altogether wasted. So we see that the migration experience did not break Lane in the way that Lansbury's friends were broken. He endured. Nevertheless, he was not unaffected. Indeed, though Ernie himself may not have been cognizant of it at the time, the events of 1884 and early 1885 set off a process that would soon shake his world to the core. All of these lived events were like blows raining down on Lane's naive and flattering view of authority. While in a formal sense, he may still have been a conservative in 1885, with each new blow it became more and more difficult to regard the existing arrangements of power and privilege as something to be defended, let alone celebrated. His thinking was inevitably changing under the stresses of the class society in which he found himself. His sensitivity to injustice grew. When, as he put it, he shed his swaddling clothes and became a passionate rebel, it was a germination from the soil of hard personal experience. It would be wrong to assume, however, that Lane's sense of alienation and his developing consciousness of class necessarily took him to radicalism. It's instructive, I think, to compare Lane's intellectual development with that of two of his contemporaries, Thomas Dobson and William Morris Hughes. We know of Dobson through a diary that has survived from his first decade in Australia. Hughes, of course, went on to become a union leader, a prime minister and an infamous Labor rat. Dobson, a millwright and pattern maker from England's North Country, uh, someone that I'm sure Jim here would admire, um, fell under the spell of the colonial immigration propaganda when the British construction industry contracted in 1881-82. He secured an assisted passage to New South Wales, arriving in Sydney with his wife Sarah and baby daughter Mary in May 1883. Over the next eight years, Dobson recorded his roller coaster ride on the Sydney labour market. Precarious stints in work were interspersed with frequent bouts of unemployment. By 1888, he was completely disillusioned. I consider these last five years has been thrown away. I have made no progress at all, he confides to his diary. His diary conveys a smouldering anger at his plight. 
And he writes sympathetically of the agitation of the unemployed. But he kept his distance and his diary offers no political solutions beyond a vague support for protectionism. The editors of Dobson's diary, Graham Davison and Shirley Constantine, point out that Dobson's narrative was not unusual for his generation. He represents, they argue, an entire group of class-conscious immigrant working men who, they write, remain largely isolated from formal politics and whose beliefs, as far as they took systematic form, formed around the essentially inward-looking and defensive doctrines of populism, protectionism and racism. And with the wisdom of hindsight, Ernie insisted that he was bound to become a rebel. But Dobson's story reminds us that a tough migrant experience was no guarantee of this. Despair or cynicism or obdurate endurance were equally possible outcomes. As Dobson himself pointed out, even suicide was not uncommon. So in many respects, Lane's story is closer to Hughes's. British-born Hughes was the son of a conservative tradesman too and, as a single man, had also arrived in Brisbane in 1884 as an assisted immigrant. He led a roving life for several years, holding down numerous jobs in rural Queensland and in Sydney before settling down in Balmain, where in 1890, as he put it, he found himself after years of strain, stress and adventure carried on the crest of the great political and industrial upheaval that led to the establishment of the Labor Party. Now, the timing here is significant. If Lane and Hughes stand apart from Dobson in their overt embrace of radical politics, Lane's narrative differs significantly from Hughes's in that Ernie radicalised in 1886-87, a full three to four years before Hughes. Whereas Hughes was swept up in the tumult of 1890, Lane came to radical politics when it was still only a barely discernible ripple on the surface of Brisbane civil society. By then, Ernie had left German Farm and was employed in Brisbane as a grocer's assistant. But the colonial capital at that time had no radical organisations to offer. So what made the difference? What was it that hammered Ernie's general sense of estrangement into the radical political form that would soon materialise? The answer, I think, lies in the influence of what I call close political voices. It was in particular the close political voice of his own brother William that played the critical role in Ernie's conscious break from his conservative past. When in June 1885 William turned up in Brisbane accompanied by his family, Ernie was shocked to discover that his much-loved brother and childhood mentor had renounced many elements of their conservative past and no longer feared God or honoured the Queen. In other circumstances or in another family, this might have caused a rift. But amongst the Lanes, the sibling bond was strong. Ernie, moreover, for all his resilience, was isolated, vulnerable and needing support, while William was willing and able to take Ernie under his wing. Historian John Kellett has suggested Ernie may have lived with William and his family in this period, though I've not been able to find any direct evidence of this. William was certainly easily accessible. By 1887, he was residing in Key Street in that little pocket of land between Upper Roma Street and the river. Ernie was evidently privy to many of William's discussions and debates with members of Brisbane's nascent radical community. As I've said, these were the years of socialism's infancy before it was confident enough to declare its presence on the streets or parks or meeting rooms of the city. Another brother, John, recalled William meeting prominent radical sympathisers privately to discuss politics and literature. These rendezvous probably occurred at the Lane home, away from public scrutiny. Typically, William would invite friends and acquaintances to meet for a group discussion. Records of an exchange with writer Francis Kenner in 1888 reveals how radicalism's emergence as a major force in Brisbane began at a molecular level in small private gatherings convened after work, after work hours in homes, tea houses and offices across the city. In October, Kenner wrote to Lane 
who was by then editor of the Boomerang newspaper, soliciting a job as a regular correspondent on the paper. Sometime later, obviously after the two men had struck up a friendship, Lane wrote to Kenner. My dear Kenner, would like you to drop in here on Monday at 8pm. A few of us want to form a little social gathering for mutual instruction and encouragement and I'll be glad to have you come. Fees nothing, rules none. Yours, W. Lane. Though not necessarily an active participant, Ernie was present at many of these little events. He observed William's heated arguments with the visiting radical essayist and poet Francis Adams, whose class struggle militancy was not to William's taste. He was there when William formed a Bellamy Society to discuss and promote the socialist vision of uh, um, Edward Bellamy's uh, utopian novel, Looking Backward. And he joined the society's dozen members who met regularly at George Marchant's hop beer factory in Bowen Street. Whether alone in William's company or together with other dissidents gathered by the light of kerosene lamps in rooms around town, there was always opportunities for Ernie to listen to and learn from these close political voices. And learn he did. Along with the Bellamy Society, the Boomerang newspaper, launched in November 1887 with William as editor, nurtured and rallied the city's tiny radical community. It was an outlet for radical ideas and it provided employment for visiting socialists like Francis Adams. And this, in turn, helped prolong their stay in Brisbane and broadened the intellectual horizon for novice radicals like Ernie. Adams, in fact, became one of Ernie's most important influences after William. I found myself actually close, closely in sympathy with the extreme rebelliousness of, of Francis Adams, who was impatient of William's more demure methods, Ernie wrote. Basically, Adams was a class struggle socialist. Before emigrating to Australia in 1884, he had been a member of the Social Democratic Federation in London, which places him to use Edward Thompson's uh, words, at the effective birth of modern socialism in Britain. And we can say that Adams was present at the birth of the same movement in Australia. He helped introduce here the centrality of the labour theory of value and Marx's crucial conclusion that socialism would be created only by an act of working-class self-emancipation, a message Adams carried into his own poetry. As he put it in the poem to the Sons of Labour, Grave this deep in your hearts. Forget not the tale of the past. Never, never believe that any will help you or can, saving only yourselves. Adams's particular combination of poetry and politics proved to be an alluring mix for Ernie. He was also drawn in by Adams's status as a writer who could be linked back to powerful British literary currents, starting with Adams's erstwhile SDF comrade, William Morris and working backwards from him to the great lyric poets of the Romantic tradition. And it's hard to overstate how important such a connection was for young radicals of the late colonial period. Literature and the literary occupied an absolutely central place in their movement, even more than folk and rock music would to a later generation of activists. Not only were books the lifeblood of mass radicalism, their limited availability in 1880s Australia ensured the reading experience was particularly intense, with a small range of texts being circulated widely, serialised in the radical press, read again and again, and even committed to memory. Sourcing or producing affordable editions of canonical works and disseminating them to a mass audience became one of the defining political tasks of the age. Ted Brady, soon to become one of Ernie's closest comrades and a lifelong friend, gives a dramatic account of the role books played in his own radicalisation in Sydney in 1890. And I quote, Hugo influenced me greatly. Val McKee's Ramayana intoxicated me. Arnold's Light of Asia half converted me to Buddhism and to Draper's intellectual development of Europe and Winwood Reed's Martyrdom of Man, I still remain indebted. I swatted German philosophy, studied Spinoza, 
adored Goethe and wrestled with Spencer and John Stuart Mill. Darwin, Huxley, Lindell and Heichel burst upon me with cosmic force. At 20, I took Das Kapital from the library shelves and sat down to the most technical, coldest and most compelling task of my life. I stood up, after renewals, a socialist and a man. (laughs) Now, in 1887, Ernie's literary path to socialism and manhood was less convoluted than Ted's, for in Brisbane the range of texts was somewhat smaller, particularly in the field of political economy and history. But he made the most of what he found. The publication of a worthwhile book of a revolutionary nature, he wrote, was hailed a heaven-sent gift and eagerly procured and diligently digested. (coughs) Of the texts Ernie did, did have on hand, the ones that had most impact, the ones that were the closest political voices, were those that spoke to his personal experience of political transformation. They included John Morrison Davidson's New Book of Kings, published in 1884, Olive Schreiner's 1883 novel, The Story of an African Farm, and William Morris's A Dream of John Ball, published in 1886. The New Book of Kings was, as its subtitle declared, a Republican counterblast, just the kind of anti-monarchist diatribe one would expect to delight a young man in the throes of throwing over his own childhood worship of queen and country. Ernie may have read the 1887 edition, deliberately published in the aftermath of the Royal Jubilee celebrations. The British monarchy, it declared, is perhaps the most colossal fraud and farce that ever existed in this world since man appeared on the face of the earth. Olive Schreiner's book, not surprisingly, is much subtler. Set in South Africa, the semi-autobiographical novel narrates the transition from religious belief to a form of spiritual materialism in the character of Waldo, the son of a German farm overseer. As Waldo's psychic journey unfolds, the narrator catches him at the moment of losing God. Now we have no God. We've had two. The old God that our fathers handed down to us, that we hated and never like, the new one that we made for ourselves, that we loved, but now he had flitted away from us and we see what he was made of, the shadow of our highest ideal, crowned and thrown. Now we have no God. Now, there are obvious parallels here to Ernie's own metamorphosis, a thoroughgoing rupture from religion induced by the power of material reality imposing on Lane's rational self. For Waldo and for Lane, What replaces God is a serene materialism. A little later, the same passage reads, And so it comes to pass in time that the earth ceases for us to be a weltering chaos. We walk in the great hall of life, looking up and round reverentially. Nothing is despicable. All is meaningful. Nothing is small. All is part of a whole whose beginning and end we know not. These passages not only allowed Ernie the cathartic pleasure of recognising in Waldo's experience his own abandonment of religious belief, but Schreiner's sensitive positioning of humanity and nature registered Ernie's own affinity with the natural world, an affinity that can be traced back to Ernie's youthful times of wandering the countryside around Bristol with his brothers. And as you can see from this photograph, which may have come out a little bit dark on the screen here, um, this affinity with nature was something that Lane never lost. Morris's A Dream of John Ball also evokes a pre-industrial world where humanity is less estranged from nature. Set against the actual events of the English peasant revolt of 1381, led by excommunicated priest John Ball, Morris's tale combines medievalism with modern socialism. His fictional John Ball encounters a character from the future, the narrator, with a decidedly Marxian worldview, who foretells a time when the labour shall be legally free, but condemned by material necessity to work for a wage and produce value for others. Written after Morris had led a breakaway from the SDF, 
to form the more revolutionary Socialist League, A Dream of John Ball is essentially a propaganda piece which uses a pre-capitalist past as a bird's eye view device to demystify contemporary class relations. While the new book of Kings and African Farm helped Ernie deal with the shedding of old ideas, John Ball served to introduce him to the new in the form of a rudimentary Marxian analysis of wage labour. Morris was a seminal figure for William and for Ernie Lane. John Kellett claims William took the pen name John Miller from the dream of John Ball because the John Ball character, and in particular Morris's rendering of it, invoked the utopian socialist tradition which William was committed to continuing. Now this, in my view, is a misreading of, of Morris's use of the character by both Kellett and Lane. Morris has his narrator anticipate a day when men shall have the fruits of the earth and the fruits of their toil thereon, without money and without price. It would be wrong to interpret this, as Kellett does, as conclusive evidence of millenarian politics on Morris's part. Any number of radical traditions could have produced such a vision. In Morris's case, it is entirely consistent with the tenets of the revolutionary socialist movement he was endeavouring to build through the Socialist League. Nevertheless, in drawing on the John Bull story as he does, and more generally in his abiding preoccupation with medievalism, Morris certainly left himself open to misinterpretation by utopians like William Lane. Having been a disciple of Carlyle and Ruskin and a member of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, Morris stood, it should be remembered, as a bridge between the Romantic Revolt and modern socialism. William could never reconcile these two positions and was more attracted to Morris the Romantic Medievalist than Morris the Revolutionary Marxist. Ernie, on the other hand, drew from both wells and recognised the intellectual path linking the two. In a sense, Ernie was on the same journey as Morris, whereas William was stuck in the futile millenarian traditions of the past. We can see this fusion of the Romantic and Socialist in Ernie's admiration of the lyric poet Percy Shelley. As important as the prose of Davidson, Schreiner and Morris was to Lane's intellectual growth, it's the poets who stood above everyone else in the literary world as Ernie's inspiration. Byron, Burns, Whitman, the early Swinburne and, at the pinnacle, Shelley. For Lane's generation, Shelley was Bob Dylan and Rage Against the Machine rolled into one. This great singer of democracy and prophet of the future people's day of liberation, as Ernie once described him, expressed in verse of intense lyrical power the rage against class society, which Ernie himself felt as he went about his daily routine, working as a grocer's assistant, wandering the dirty streets of Brisbane, taking in the latest news of the world and gathering with like-minded comrades to discuss what was to be done. Consider how in the poem Queen Mab, Shelley describes the predicament of those condemned to work as wage slaves. Hardened to hope, insensible to fear, scarce living pulleys of a dead machine, mere wheels of work and articles of trade that grace the proud and noisy pomp of wealth. As a mere wheel of work himself, a living pulley of a dead machine, Lane revelled in such imagery and embraced Shelley as a poet for his own age, a voice of his own generation. Obedience, wrote Shelley, makes slaves of men and of the human frame a mechanised automaton. One can picture the young Ernie Lane taking a long puff of his, of his pipe and nodding his head in agreement when he read that passage. Politically, Shelley was the most modern and radical of the great romantic lyricists. Lane could turn to Shelley's The Mask of Anarchy and contemplate the violence of power and privilege of his own time. Conversely, and more importantly, Lane could recite passages from this poem as an expression of enduring optimism in the revolutionary potential of the downtrodden of his own era. In this poem, the character of anarchy is eventually slain by Hope, who calls upon the crushed multitude to rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew, which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few.
Here in colonial Australia, meanwhile, the many were beginning to stir. And I want to turn now to the influence of public events on Ernie's thinking. The drought and economic downturn of 1884 notwithstanding, the 1880s was a decade of economic expansion, sparking a renewed assertiveness amongst broad sections of Queensland's working population. In 1882, after a lull of some six years, the campaign for an eight-hour day was relaunched with the founding of an eight-hours committee. While the committee's results were fairly patchy, the wider push for reduced hours and other improvements made important gains and had the lasting effect of disentangling the interests of labour and capital, especially in the trades. The house painters in Brisbane provided one of the best examples of this development. In March 1885, they met to form a union, which became the Operative House Painters and Decorators Society. And as the Brisbane Courier reported, the employers from the first showed a disposition to join them in a most friendly spirit. This attitude quickly changed when the employers discovered to their dismay that the union's rules insisted on an eight-hour day and overtime for work performed beyond the normal spread of a 45-hour week. Relations cooled even further when the union refused to compromise. A year later, the painters took on the masters a second time, demanding further improvements in wages and in overtime provisions. In March 1886, they downed brushes across the city to force the employer or employers to come to terms. With financial assistance from kindred unions in Sydney and Melbourne and a levy on members whose employers had already conceded, the union was able to hold out until virtually all painters in Brisbane were on the rate demanded. A similar separating out of the class forces was evident in the political arena. When a Trades and Labor Council formed in September 1885, one of its aims was to send workingmen to Parliament signalling a move away from the Liberal Labor Alliance of the early 1880s, which had in effect placed the local labor movement under the political leadership of the Liberal section of urban capital led by uh, Samuel Griffith. Out of the TLC's initiative, a workers' political reform association was launched at a meeting in Fortitude Valley in November 1887. Now, these were all important developments but it was the unionising amongst workers without traditional craft skills, the so-called new unions of the semi-skilled or unskilled, that did most to invigorate the labour movement in these years. Miners, seafarers, shearers, rural labourers and railway navvies were all organising, in some cases beyond across uh, colonial boundaries. In Brisbane, wharf labourers and seamen formed unions in 1884 the builders' labourers registered a union in 1887, while the omnibus and tram operators and railway workers followed two years later. Brisbane's general labourers formed a union in November 1889. Now, the, the success of this working-class mobilisation shaped the kind of radical that Ernie became. Despite his personal difficulties, he came to politics in optimistic times when it was easy to believe in the possibility and power of collectivism. Unity was the core message. He witnessed it on the Otago. He learned it at an intellectual level from his brother. He experienced it in a fraternal way as a member of Brisbane's tiny radical community. And he saw it succeed on the wider stage as workers around him unionised, won industrial victories and created federations across colonial and industry boundaries. The lesson sank deep into his bones, becoming the basis for his political resilience in the decades to come. And just as all this was happening, news of another sequence of public events, far from colonial Brisbane, hit Ernie with such force it set the seal on his passionate radicalism. On the 4th of May 1886, a bomb exploded in Haymarket Square in Chicago as police were dispersing striking workers. Eight anarchist workers were subsequently arrested and put on trial for the bombing. All were convicted of inciting to riot, the prosecution having, having failed spectacularly 
to prove that any of them was responsible for the bomb. Seven of the men were sentenced to death. Four were hanged on the 11th of November 1887. One of the condemned took his own life in jail and the remaining two had their sentences commuted to life in prison. The three imprisoned men were eventually granted clemency in 1892 by a new governor who declared the trial a miscarriage of justice. And what you see here is a famous illustration of the Chicago anarchist drawn by the socialist uh, artist Walter Crane. Commenting on the impact in America of the trial and executions, Howard Zinn has written that while the immediate result was the suppression of the radical movement, the long-term effect was to keep alive the class anger of many, to inspire others, especially young people of that generation, to action in revolutionary causes. Zinn's point applied equally to Australia. Ernie was one of the Haymarket generation. The trial, incarceration and execution of the Chicago anarchists, he wrote years later, was remembered as an imperishable landmark on the road to freedom. He placed them alongside the Paris communards as a source of inspiration, a beam of light to many weary souls, as he put it. Even more emphatically, he claimed that from that point on, he became a convinced revolutionary. And here is the revolutionary Ernie Lane, at the age of 25 in 1894. And this is the earliest photograph of Ernie that I've been able to find. And I want to thank uh, Ernie's grand, uh, granddaughter, Iris, for allowing me to use this image here today. To sum up then, the circumstances of childhood impoverishment and in insecurity, the experience of migrant and working life, the insistent murmur of close political voices, both embodied and literary, and the effect of public events here and abroad all conspired to point Lane towards a life of labour movement radicalism. By the end of 1887, he was a socialist. His socialism at that stage was vague as to program and strategy, but some things about it were clear. It was belligerently anti-capitalist, avowedly collectivist, inclining towards revolution and anxious for the day of reckoning to arrive. Some of these elements would shade away over the years but the anti-capitalism never would. 30 years later, in 1917, in his column for the Daily Standard, he would have this to say about those who would preach to workers about the dignity of labour. So long as the fruits of labour are for the glorification and comfort of the capitalist class instead of for humanity itself, so long as life remains as it is today for the majority of mankind, a cruel and uncertain struggle for the means of livelihood, an unending fight for the right to live from the cradle to the grave, so long as the tools of production, the whole totality in short of the storehouse of nature, is held and controlled by a parasitical and exploiting class, so long is labour not dignified but degraded. Central to this outlook in both 1887 and in 1917 was the notion of socialism as a creative act beginning in the, in the imagination of the working people. Where there is no vision, there the people perish, he wrote, quoting from the Bible. He could have found a similar point equally well made in Shelley's defence of poetry. There is, wrote Shelley, no want of knowledge respecting what is wisest and best in morals, government and political economy, or at least what is wiser and better than what men now practise or endure. But we want the creative faculty to imagine that which we know. We want the generous impulse to act that which we imagine. We want the poetry of life. From Shelley and Morris, from the workers of Brisbane and Chicago, from his own brother and his political circle, and from his own experiences, Lane got the poetry of life, both of life as it was lived and life as it could be. Only certain moments in history have given rise to circumstances where the imaginative rupture envisaged by Shelley and Lane has become a mass event, a groundswell, a movement, with the potential to transform society from the first kind of life to the second. In Australia, the intellectual ferment of which Ernie Lane was a part marked out the late 19th century as one of those moments. It is to Lane's great credit 
that throughout his long life, that moment stayed with him, continuing to inspire him and marking him out as one of Australia's most enduring and resolute Labor rebels. Thank you. Um, in a sense, similar, similar to Ernie, he left um, uh, England and went to North America. He arrived in North America, still holding conservative ideas. Um, but it seems there he came into contact. Well, when he arrived, it was a time of great industrial upheaval. There were major strikes going on. Um, and then he came into contact with the, um, the Knights of Labor, which at the time was a clandestine um, workers' organisation, a mass organisation, a very large organisation, but he came into contact with them. And it seems, again, through that process of the experience of his own difficulties um, and the exposure to a large industrial movement and, in particular, the ideas of the Knights of Labor... Um, that in that process of, of time in North America, first in Canada and then in Detroit in the United States, um, he became a radical too. Um, John Kellett fairly persuasively argues that um, many of the ideas that William came to Australia with came from the Knights of Labour um, and he lists a whole series of them and I think it's pretty convincing. So I think, um, again, a range of things to do with the migrant experience uh, to do with his own difficulties, um, his own estrangement from, from society um, and in particular the exposure to those social and political forces in North America. Uh, question for those who didn't hear that was uh, how, how did Ernie... Uh, spend the later periods of his life because he lived, as was said, um, uh, to a ripe old age. He died in 1954. Um, well, he, he, he remained politically active. Um, he eventually was more or less sacked from the Daily Standard for being too radical. The paper was moving in a more conservative direction. He picked up work as, uh, as, a, as a journalist for um, the Brisbane Courier. And then when he retired, basically, um, there was a period of time when he, he didn't seem to be politically active at all. Um, but out of that period, he produced the memoir Dawn to Dusk in 1938. Um, <clears throat> thereafter, he seemed, to, he seemed to transform himself and became, in a sense, the veteran socialist, the pioneer socialist. And the Communist Party would often invite him to events as, as one of the pioneers of the Australian socialist movement. So in a sense, he continued his political role um, as, as, as one of the, the um, I suppose, the elders of the socialist movement. Um, and he continued to do that um, right, right through you know, in, in the Second World War period. Um, in between that, he, he spent a lot of time down at Corumban. He had, he had a, a shack down there and um, he loved the surf, he loved the sand... And I haven't got it with me, but I have a wonderful photograph of Ernie um, in his swimming costume with his pipe completely covered with sand. And um, <clears throat> he, it, again, it goes back to that love of nature, which I think developed in him from childhood, uh, that that's where he escaped to. And he spent um, many, many uh, weeks indeed in the, in the last stages of his life until he got too sick to be down there at Corumban. And when you read some of his correspondence, which is sort of scattered here and there in collections, um, you find he's always badgering people to come and visit him at Corumba. You know? there's, there's, letters, there's letters, for example, to um, Frank Hardy, um, 
pleading with him to come to Kurama and you'll love it. You know, a great place to write. You know, he's, uh, he's always trying to get people to come and visit him at Kurumban. So he, he, he lived out his life corresponding with um, um, many of the people who were still politically active but also many of his earlier comrades. He became a close correspondent again with um, uh, Ted Brady. Um, so he kept up his political interest in the world and he certainly um, um, was, was happy to go along to uh, Communist Party events um, as, as the veteran of the movement. Um, the house that they bought, uh, he actually did go to Cosme for a period, um, the Paraguayan settlement that was founded by his brother. It didn't really work for, for Ernie, as indeed it didn't work for most of them, but um, <laughs> when, he, when, he, when he came back to Australia, um, into Queensland, they, uh, Mabel, his wife Mabel and Ernie, uh, bought a home uh, right on the gully, what was the gully. And if you recall, a number of years ago, there was a, a campaign to save the gully. Um, well, Ernie, Ernie's house was basically right at the top of the gully. And he it looked down into the gully itself. The land went right down into the gully. And he um, that photograph was taken in, in the backyard of the house, looking down across the gully. And he actually terraced some of the, some of the land there and, and he, he grew one, wonderful gardens. Um, and he spent a lot of time in the garden there. And that home actually, he called it Cosme, um, it, it became the place where visiting radicals from interstate and indeed from overseas would stay when they came to Brisbane. Um, it was a vi very vibrant place. So it was both a retreat for him to get away from the strains and stresses of political life and working life, but it was also a place where other like-minded radicals would gather, particularly those from interstate. Um, when you say Ted Brady, I presume you mean uh, E.J. Brady? The That's correct, yeah. Um, E.J. or Ted Brady was, um, became secretary of the, um, uh, the socialist organisation in Sydney, which Ernie became a member of when he went to Sydney. And they were youngsters together and they were there in the height of the 1891 um, uh, Shearer's strike and so on and they, uh, they had a very um, busy political life together. Um, they actually roomed together in some squat in Sydney. Uh, so they, were, they became very close. But Ted Brady um, actually was, became very disillusioned and left politics completely. Um, spent decades... Um, having nothing to do with politics. But I discovered um, in the first, firstly in the 1930s, no, possibly a bit earlier, late 20s, um, they started corresponding again after many years. And there's a wonderful series of correspondence where Ted basically comes back into politics, not so much actively, but certainly engaged in politics and, um, and certainly with the old sort of fire that he had uh, as a young man in the early 1890s. But, uh, and, they, and they continued to correspond right through until Ted died a few years before Ernie did. Okay, one more maybe. Yeah. Um, talking about Ted, it, it, in Ernie's case and his strong socialism, what was his attitude to the way Australian society was developed? Ted, Bra Ted Brady? Ernie. Uh, er, well, um, qu the question is... Ernie's, Ernie's um, attitude to, to the way Australian society was evolving. Well, um, I suppose you can divide that question up into two parts. As, as the 1920s and 1930s went on, Ernie was increasingly disillusioned with the Labor Party, which was a party that he, he helped to, to found, um, but he was increasingly uh, uplifted by the workers' movement. Um, so he, he, I think there were, there were times when Ernie became quite disillusioned and bitter and if you've read Dawn to Dusk, you get a strong sense of that disillusionment and bitterness. But at the same time, he took a lot of heart from what he saw around him in the developing workers' movement. So I don't think, um, yeah, I think there was, 
Ernie was quite optimistic. He remained an optimism, optimist despite periodic bouts of disillusionment. Uh, he kept on coming back to it because he, he genuinely believed that there would be a time when um, all, all of this um, oppression and exploitation, um, competition would be put to one side and he, and he looked to the workers' movement to do that and I think into, into the 1940s, in the 30s and 40s, he, re, he retained that belief. He was quite optimistic. What a fantastic note to end on. So please can we thank Jeff for what was just the most amazing and insightful presentation. So thank, thank you. Certainly, I think, for all of us who work in libraries to see someone pulling together the resources to such an eloquent presentation. So hopefully it's inspired and encouraged um, all of us to, to think about um, that work. Um, so a big thank you to Jeff. And uh, as I said earlier, that the presentation will be podcast on the website, so in a few days you can access it again. It's very dense with detail and um, comments. Just uh, next month we meet, um, it's a bit out of sync because of Echo Wednesday, um, so it's the Wednesday after Echo Wednesday, uh, which we're looking at uh, Trish Fielding um, coming from another hotbed of radicalism in Townsville to come and talk about uh, Flinders Street and the work that she's done on the social, political and economic growth of Townsville in the 20th century. So uh, the groundwork has been laid here. <laughs> so uh, thanks again and uh, we'll see you next month. <laughs>